First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. You have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3? We have been studying Paul's letter uh, to the church at Philippi for a couple of months now, and uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Uh, We finished up chapter 2 together, and in front of us uh, today is an incredible part of this letter, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Let's read it as we get started. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if Anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ." Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, this passage speaks of your resurrection power. And Lord, I ask now that your resurrection power by your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place. And Lord, if there are any here, if there are any listening, Father, in this moment who do not yet have a relationship with you, who perhaps, Lord, are trapped in a works-based, rule-based religion who are trying with all of their might to earn their way to you. Lord, that today you might set them free from that and that today they may find forgiveness and life and hope in you. Lord, help us that we may know your Son, Christ, and that we may know him more and more. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, my wife, uh, Megan, and I uh, did, did not have uh, cable, and so the only channels that we get uh, are the channels that come in over the antenna, which I like the cost uh, point, the price point of that is very good uh, at free, uh, but it does kind of limit uh, your viewing options, and, uh, and so sometimes, sadly, we will find ourselves watching PBS at night. And uh, there is one of those shows uh, that, that we do like on, on uh, PBS, and, and maybe some of y'all have seen it, the Antiques Roadshow. Anybody ever watched the Antique? Am I the only? Okay, there's a few hands who have seen that show. If you haven't seen that show, uh, what, what people do on that show is that they show up and, and, and they bring their stuff, right? They bring uh, these things that they believe are treasures from their house, and they bring them to these expert appraisers in different areas who, who will film these little spots, right, talking about what they brought in and talking about how much it's worth and all of that. And, uh, and, and it's neat because sometimes, you know, they'll ask the person, well, how much did you pay for that? And, uh, you know, and sometimes the person got it at, you know, a yard sale or they, you know, I paid like 12 cents for it. And, and at the end of the day, it ends up being worth sometimes like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right, and this is every yard sale shopper's dream, right? That you're going to find something that somebody else throws away and thinks is trash, right? And it ends up being a, a great treasure. Of course, sometimes on that show, it's, it's the opposite that happens, right? They bring in this thing that they thought was really valuable. Sometimes they even paid lots and lots of money to get it. And, and then the appraiser ends up appraising it and ends up being a fake, right? They thought it was a Picasso and ended up being a Pinocchio, right? And so, uh, and so they say, yeah, you paid this much for it, but, but that's worth about 12 cents, right? And, and so sometimes what they thought was a treasure ends up being basically trash, and I think uh, that sometimes we're like that. that. That sometimes we get confused about what our treasure is and what our trash is. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul basically admits that there was a time in his life when the things that he thought were his treasures, that the things that, that he was banking everything on, in the end, he realized that basically it was all trash. That it did him no good at all when it came to his standing before God. But Paul also came to understand something else. He came to understand that there is one thing and one thing only that really is an absolute treasure. And he talks about that in verse 8. He said, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says this is the real treasure. The real treasure is knowing Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why Christ is a treasure and why everything else is a loss compared to the gain of knowing Christ. Him. This passage is so important because in this passage, Paul basically shares with us how to be saved. And if you're here today and you're not sure if you are a Christian, if you're not sure of where you stand with God right now, I I'm praying for you. I pray that, that you'll just listen closely to what God wants to say to you through his word right now. If you look with me at Philippians 3, Paul starts out in the first couple of verses uh, in this passage by just setting the stage uh, for what he's going to write about. And, and, and first off, Paul sets the stage by giving us a command, uh, and the command is to rejoice in the Lord. Look with me at verse 1. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, 
rejoice in the Lord. You know, it's interesting that he begins with that word finally because that might make you think that the letter is almost over when actually there are 44 verses left in the letter. Uh, but, you know, that, that's a lot like a lot of preachers today, isn't it, right? You know, we, uh, you, you know by now that when we say finally, that doesn't mean anything. Right? We can say finally 18 times before we actually get to the end of the sermon and, and finally land the plane. And maybe you think, you know, that's what Paul is doing here when he uses that word finally. But really that word should be translated as something like, uh, so then. Because really he's carrying on a, a conversation about joy that he left off talking about up in chapter 2 and verse 17. And, and really that he spent a lot of this letter talking about. That's why we've titled this series, Joy in Jesus. Because more than anything else, I think that's what the book of Philippians is all about. It's about how to have joy in Jesus no matter what circumstances, uh, no matter what might be going on in our lives. And so in chapter 3, he returns to that theme of joy and he commands us to have joy. But this is the first time that he tells us where we can have joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This is where joy is found. Joy is found only in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, if you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus already, I want to invite you today to come to know him, to come to experience the joy that, that he wants you to have, joy that is only found in knowing him. Now, right after Paul gives that command about rejoicing in the Lord, he goes on in verse 1 uh, to say, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And Paul is uh, telling them that, that what he's about to say to them, what he's about to write to them in the next few verses, is something that he's already said to them. That's why he says, I'm going to say this to you again. Perhaps he, he taught them about this even when he was with them in person in Philippi. And he says, it's not a bother for me to say this to you again. In fact, he says, for you, it is safe. And really, the word there means uh, that it is a safe guard. That, that this is a safe course of action for me to take, to, to write this to you again. And then in verse 2, as he continues on, what he wants to give them, what he thinks is safe for them to hear again, is a warning. And he gives them, in verse 2, a very strong warning. And the warning is, beware of dogs. Now, I'm sure that all of us have, have uh, probably in the past, walked up to someone's house and they had one of those signs up, right, that said, beware of dog. And it had a, a picture of, a, you know, a German shepherd or something on there, ferocious-looking uh, dog. And, and essentially, that's what Paul is doing, right? He's, he's putting up a beware of dog sign right here in verse 2. Look at what he says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, of course, Paul is not warning them about literal dogs, right? About pit bulls and German shepherds. He has a different kind of dog in mind. He's thinking about a particular group of people that were known as the Judaizers. Now, who the Judaizers were, they were a group of Jewish uh, believers who said, you know what, it's all well and good uh, for you to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they said that is not enough. Well, what you also need to do is you, you need to, basically, if you're a Gentile, you need to become Jewish before you can get saved, which means you need to keep all of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. 
It means you need to keep all of the dietary laws. And most importantly, it means that you need to get circumcised because that's the sign of you becoming a part of the people of God. Uh, back in Acts chapter 15, the same uh, controversy was going on uh, as the gospel was beginning to make inroads into Gentile regions. And, and they were having a debate about this exact issue. And at the beginning of Acts 15 and verse 1, it says this same group of people were saying, And unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, listen, you cannot be saved. That's what they were teaching. And the early church and the disciples were, were debating about this. And in Acts 15, you can read about that this week, they came to the conclusion that God has already made it clear that salvation is not just for Jewish people, that salvation is for anyone who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that it is? And in Acts 15, they said, you know what? Because salvation is open to anyone, you don't have to first become Jewish in order to be saved. You just need to come to the one who is the promise that was given to the Jews. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, that would have settled the issue, uh, but apparently not. These Judaizers did not go quietly into the night. They kept popping up in different places, and apparently they were popping up here in Philippi. And they were teaching the very same thing, that, again, faith in Jesus isn't enough. It's faith in Jesus plus. And anytime you add a plus sign after faith in Jesus, you have distorted the true gospel of the Bible. You know, not a lot of things got Paul fired up, but this did. And whenever you find the Apostle Paul using strong language like he does here, like he does in his letter to the Galatians, it's always over this same issue. What gets Paul fired up is when people get the gospel wrong. When people begin to distort and twist the gospel that saves people from hell and saves people to heaven, that gets Paul fired up. And you know what? It should get us fired up. Because life and death and eternity is at stake when we get the gospel wrong. And so that's why in verse 2, Paul uses this strong language and he calls these false teachers dogs. Now, that would be an insult today, right? If somebody came up, you're such a dog, right? That wouldn't be a kind thing for someone to say. And that was an insult back then as well. But, but I want you to hear this. Paul is not just picking a, a random word when he uses this word dog. He, he's actually using a word that's very ironic in the way that he is applying it because the word dog was a, a word that the Jewish people would use to refer to Gentiles who were outside of the covenant of the people of God. And, and what Paul is doing is he's flipping that around and he's saying to these Judaizers, he's saying, actually, you are the dogs. You are the ones who are outside of the covenant of the people of God because you are the ones who are not believing in Jesus alone for your salvation. He doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he says, beware of evil workers. I'm sure that one stung as well because here's this group of people that so prided themselves in all the righteous things that they were going out and doing. And Paul says, actually, you're evil workers because, listen, there's nothing more evil than leading people astray from where they can find the truth and where they can find salvation. And that's what you're doing, whether you know it or not. And then lastly, in this verse, he says, beware of the mutilation. 
Now, what he's doing there is he's playing off of the word for circumcision. The word from circumcision really literally means to cut around. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, you're, you're cutting all right, but what you're doing is not anything that's helpful. What you're actually doing is you're mutilating people. You're telling them that they need to be circumcised when actually all they need to do is to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. And so what you're doing is, is something that's just harming people, something that's really just a mutilation to people that, that really doesn't do anything to bring about salvation in their life. It's just like God said way back in Jeremiah chapter 4. He said what God wants isn't for us to circumcise our bodies. Ultimately, what God wants is for us to circumcise our hearts. He wants to change us from the inside out. And that only happens, as Paul goes on to explain, when we stop trusting in the things that we can do and we start trusting in what only God can do. And so after setting the stage and after uh, giving this warning about these false teachers, Paul goes on in the rest of this passage to answer a couple of questions for us. And first off, uh, he answers the question in verses 3 through 8, what are the marks of those who really know Christ? If the mark isn't some physical mark, right? If it isn't something that's done to our bodies like circumcision, then what is it? How do you know a Christian when you see one? And verse 3 begins to answer that question. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, We who know Jesus are the real circumcision. We're the real people of God. Because again, it's not about all the outside stuff. It's about the inside stuff. It's about what God does to change our hearts. And then he goes on in the rest of verse 3 to give three different markers of those uh, who have a changed heart. He says mark number one is that we worship God in the Spirit. When he uses the word worship there, he's not just speaking about what we're doing now. It's not just speaking about singing or being in a worship service. He's speaking about all of life. That we worship God with everything that we do because of what he has already done in our life to save us. And we worship him in the spirit because those whose hearts have been changed by Christ are filled with the spirit of Christ who enables us to be able to live this life of worship. So he says, first off, we are those who worship in the spirit. Secondly, we are those who boast in Jesus. Now, in my translation, it says we rejoice in Jesus, but that word rejoice can also be translated boast or, or to exalt in. And as Christians, we, we, that's what we do, right? We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Jesus. We boast in what he has done because he has done everything that was necessary to save us. It's just like Paul wrote over in Galatians chapter 6. Look at this verse. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. And so true believers, those who've been saved by Christ, they worship God in the Spirit. They boast in Jesus alone. And then number three is almost the flip side of number two. True believers are also marked by the fact that we don't put any confidence in ourselves. The last phrase of verse three says, we have no confidence in the flesh. 
And when he says in the flesh, he doesn't literally mean our skin, right? Our flesh. He means we don't put any confidence in ourselves and our own accomplishments and our own achievements and the things that we have done without God. We understand that we're not saved by that. We know that, that what we have done isn't going to get it done. It's only what God has done for us. We're, we're far too broken to fix what's wrong inside of us with a piece of scotch tape. Right? What we need is a Savior. And it's on that last marker of, of not having confidence in the flesh that Paul just camps out for the next few verses because that's exactly what the opponents were, of Paul and of the gospel were doing in this church. They were putting their confidence in themselves and what they have done, and they were trying to get other people to do the same. They were putting their confidence in how well they kept the law of Moses and how well they kept all the dietary laws and their confidence in this fleshly mark of circumcision that they had on their bodies. And what Paul was saying is, listen, just for the sake of argument, if salvation did come by outward fleshly means, if it did come by human achievement, by human accomplishment, just for the sake of argument, let me just walk down this road with you for just a minute, because if that's how it happened, then I'd be a lot further down the road than you would be. And that's what he says in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And so what he goes on to do in verses 5 and 6 is he kind of rattles off his Jewish uh, religious pedigree. And he lists seven different parts of his resume here. He says, first off, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Just like the law prescribed, I was a, an eight-dayer. Right? He says, I, I wasn't a person who, who came to Judaism later in life. I was a Jew from the get-go. Then he says, I'm of the stock or of the house of Israel. Again, he wasn't a Gentile who converted to Judaism. He was born a Jew. He was ethnically and religiously a Jew. He could trace his lineage and his heritage back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he goes on to say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He was from an elite tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of only two tribes that stayed loyal to the line of King David when the kingdoms were divided. So he says, I'm not just from any tribe. I'm from an elite uh, tribe within the nation of Israel. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. This refers to his parents and how they raised him. And even though Paul grew up in a Gentile pagan area, his parents raised him as a Hebrew. They raised him with the customs and the language of the Hebrew people, that he was faithful to be raised in the proper Jewish way. And of course, none of those first four things really are anything that Paul did. Right, those first four things are really all things about what his parents did and about how he was born and the nation and family that he was born into. Uh, but then as he moves on, the next three things he rattles off do involve decisions that Paul made and how Paul devoutly lived out his Jewish faith. He says at the end of verse 5, concerning the law of Pharisee. Now, now I know when we hear the word Pharisee, uh, another word comes into our mind, right? And that's the word what? Starts with an H and ends with hypocrite, right? Okay, hypocrite, right? That's what we think about, right? We think of a hypocrite because of Jesus' teaching against the, the Pharisees. And yet, I want you to hear that that's not how the people of Paul's day thought of the Pharisees, right? The, the Jewish people looked at the Pharisees as if they were up on a pedestal. These were people who had memorized the law of Moses, 
These were people who, who were so careful to obey every little tiny detail of the law that the people in Israel thought, I can never be like one of the Pharisees. And Paul says, you know what I was? I was one of them. I was a Pharisee. And then Paul said in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, by this time in Paul's life, of course, he was ashamed that at one point in his past, he persecuted the church. That's why later he calls himself the chief of all sinners because of the way he persecuted the church. But he's saying, listen, from the Jewish perspective, though, it doesn't get more zealous than chasing people down and throwing them into prison because you think they're attacking your faith. It doesn't get more zealous than that. Paul says, I was zealous if anybody was zealous. And then lastly, to, to just kind of sum it up, he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. Now, Paul is not saying that he is perfect, but he was saying that outwardly speaking, he kept the law. If anybody had come and just examined Paul's life, there wouldn't have been any glaring area that they could have pointed at and said that he was not up to par. And so again, you take all of these things together. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, if you want to talk about credentials uh, of someone who could have been saved by the things that they did, it doesn't get any better than my credentials. And in Judaism, it really did not. Uh, even the Judaizers that were attacking this church did not have better credentials than the apostle Paul. He had all the bases covered. And at one point, Paul thought he did have all the bases covered. At one point, Paul thought that he was good to go with God because of who he was and because of the things that he had accomplished. But as you read about Paul's story in Acts chapter 9, one day he was walking down a road to a city called Damascus where he was on his way to arrest more Christians and throw them into jail. And as he was on his way to Damascus, God literally knocked Paul off of his high horse. And he met Jesus face to face. And in that moment, he realized that everything in the way that he had been seeing life, the way that he had been seeing faith, even the way he had been seeing salvation was completely wrong. And Paul is referring to that in verse 7 when he says, But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Paul is using business terms or, or accounting terms. And, and he says, you know what? If you, if you just imagine a sheet of paper and you imagine that on one side you have your gains and on the other side you have your losses, Paul says, you know what? All the stuff that I just rattled off, my whole life I had in the gain column. All of those seven things and another hundred things, I would have listed in the gain column. I would have listed these as the reasons why I am saved, the reasons why I am a part of the people of God. But he said, you know what? On that day, when I met Jesus face to face, I realized that all of that stuff I had in the gain column added up to a big zero. That it did nothing to save my soul. And actually he said, you know what? I realize, I realize it's worse than zero. I had to move all of those things over to the lost column because what I realized is even though I did have certain advantages in the fact that I knew the law, and he talks about that in other places, what he realized is that for me, it was actually a disadvantage because it was blinding me to my need for Christ. 
And all of these things that I thought were gain ended up being loss. And Paul says there was only one thing in the gain column, and that's all that needed to be there. It was knowing Christ. Verse 8, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence, the surpassing greatness is what that word means, of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, the word rubbish is actually a, a pretty weak and mild translation of that Greek word. The old King James Version actually has that right. The word means dung or excrement. And Paul is being graphic here on purpose. He wants us to see that everything that he was counting on to save him, to choose a G version here, is like a pile of poo. Right? That, that's what he's saying. Compared to knowing Jesus in a personal way, he said, that's what everything else in my life really amounted to. Listen, if we were to make a list of why God should allow us to go into heaven, what, what were some things you'd put on that list? No, we probably wouldn't have the same list as Paul, right? We probably wouldn't say, you know, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a Hebrew. I was in the tribe of Benjamin. Those wouldn't be our things. But, you know, if you grew up in a, in a, in a Christian home, in a religious home, you might say, you know what, well, I was baptized at some point in my life. You might say, you know, well, my parents, you know, they brought me to church all the time. They, they brought me to Sunday school all the time. I went to every vacation Bible. I have seven t-shirts to prove it. Right? We might say, well, I went to youth camp. I've even been on mission trip. We might rattle off this whole list of our spiritual religious accomplishments that somehow in our mind make us think that we're right with God. Well, maybe you say, well, that's not my story. I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. Well, maybe you'd have some other things on your list. Maybe you would say, you know what, but I do just feel like I'm a good person. I mean, you never see my picture on the news. Right? I've never killed anybody. I don't steal anything. And, and when somebody is in need, I have a good heart. When somebody is in need, I try to help them. I try to do whatever I can to, 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 to help that person that's in need. You know, some of those things might be some of the things that, that you would put on your list, right? If God were to ask you, why should I let you in to heaven? But, but I hope what we hear by now as we've kind of studied some of this passage is it doesn't matter which one of those lists we use. It doesn't matter whether we have kind of a secular list, right, of, of these good things about us and these qualities about us. It doesn't matter whether we use a religious Southern Baptist list, right, uh, of these things that we've done and these religious boxes that we've checked, right? It does not matter what list we have. I, I promise you our list is not better than Paul's list. And what he says here, what this passage so clearly says is all of that stuff amounts to trying to have a confidence in our own flesh. Of trying to be able to say, because of what I have done, because of who I am, I am confident that I know God. I'm confident that he's going to let me in to heaven. But, but what Paul clearly says here is that none of our lists are good enough, and really, they're not even close. And so just to kind of sum up this whole section, basically, we need to understand that our confidence, first of all, it can't be in who we are. And secondly, it cannot be in what we have done because who we are isn't good enough and what we have done isn't good enough. We are all sinners who need a savior. The fact of the matter is we cannot save ourselves. Salvation is not a prize waiting at the top of a ladder that you can climb up to and grab a hold of. 
Now, you may be here, and maybe you like to, to do things on your own. You know, maybe you like to fix your car whenever it breaks down. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, ladies, you like to get on Pinterest and, and find some, you know, DIY projects that you can do around your house. Maybe that's what you like to do. But, but here's the deal. Salvation is not a DIY project. Salvation is not something that you can do your By the very definition of the word salvation, it means that we need a Savior. That we need a Savior who can save us from ourselves. Because all of our accomplishments, our whole list is not nearly good enough. It's not even close. In fact, Paul says again, it's all dung. It is all loss compared to what we really need, which is the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. That is where salvation is found. Salvation is not found in what we do, but in who we know. John 17.3 puts it so simply, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Paul came to understand what each of us in this room have to come to understand, that there is no salvation apart from the treasure of knowing Christ. He's the real gain in life, and compared to him, everything else is a loss. In verses 9 through 11, Paul unpacks that further, and he answers the second question for us. What does it mean? to know Christ. What does it really mean? You know, a few weeks ago, we we talked about how there's different aspects of our salvation that the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about our salvation in the past, that that we've been justified. That the Bible talks about our salvation in the present, that we're being sanctified, that we're growing in holiness to be more like Jesus. And the Bible talks about our salvation in the future, that one day we will be glorified. And the reason I bring that up is because all three of those aspects of our salvation are found in the last three verses of this passage. In verse 9, it talks about our justification, our salvation in the past. In verse 10, it talks about our sanctification, what God is doing in our life right now. And in verse 11, it talks about our glorification, the part of our salvation that's waiting for us in the future. The first thing Paul says in verse 9 is that knowing Christ means that we've been saved by faith in Christ alone. Look at verse 9. And be found in him. This is what Paul wants. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know, the word that shows up two times in that verse is the word righteousness. And it means to do everything right, to to live right, to think right, to to speak right. Uh, The the problem for us is that the Bible says we have to be perfectly righteous in order to be with God in heaven. A little bit righteous isn't good enough. Getting it right some of the time isn't good enough. The Bible says we have to get it right all the time. And the Bible says in Romans 3, none of us have done that. None are righteous, no, not one, is what Paul wrote in Romans 3. And that's really the big problem with all of our self-salvation efforts. That's why our plan to stand before God on the day of judgment and hold up our list is not good enough because already we failed the test. Already, we, we, we have failed the test, and really, we failed it miserably. We will never get there on our own. And that is why what we really need on that day of judgment is we need someone else's righteousness 
to be given to us. Uh, you know, I know we're coming towards the end of the school year, and right now we're kind of in test season. Uh, last week, I know we have elementary uh, school kids in our house, and they were taking some of those grade-level tests. And, but tests are going all the way. I know we have college students taking tests at, at FIT, and it just, it's kind of test-taking season. And, and, I, and I know sometimes that can cause stress and anxiety. But I want you to think about what if uh, you were a kindergartner, and someone asked you to take an AP calculus test. Right? Would you be prepared to do well on that test? Some of y'all are thinking, I'm an adult and I wouldn't be prepared to do well on that test. And I'm right there with you. But especially if you're a kindergartner, right? You're not in any way prepared to take that test. Uh, you would do miserably uh, on that test. But what if the school allowed you to get someone else to take the test for you? What if you were able to go up to MIT and get the top student at MIT in mathematics and bring them down and sit them in your elementary classroom and they could sit at your desk and they could take the test for you and they knocked it out of the park, they got a 100% on it and even better, the teacher said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take that 100% that that MIT student got on your test and I'm gonna write that score next to your name. Wouldn't that be awesome? I hope we understand that that is precisely what God has done for us. Jesus did not come from MIT to Florida, but he came from heaven to earth. And part of the reason why he came wasn't just to die for our sins on the cross, although he did die for our sins on the cross. Part of the reason why he came was to live a perfect life that we have not been able to live. Jesus Christ aced the test. He got a 100%. He was perfectly righteous all the time. And when we believe in Jesus, the moment that we believe, you know what God does? He writes Jesus's 100% score next to your name in the book of life. And Paul says, that's the righteousness that I want. I don't want the righteousness that I try to scratch and claw my way to by trying to keep some external law. I know that's never going to be good enough. The righteousness that I want, Paul says, is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Salvation is not something that we can earn. Salvation is something that we have to receive. Paul says, on that day when I stand before God in judgment, look at the beginning of that verse, I just want to be found in him. And friend, I, I assure you, when that day comes, you don't want to be found anywhere else. That's part of what it means to know Christ. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. Another part of what it means to know Christ is there in verse 10. It means we keep growing to know Christ more and more and more. In verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. After we believe in Jesus, what do we spend the rest of our life doing? Paul says, you know what I want to spend the rest of my life doing? I want to spend it getting to know Jesus more and more and more. Friend, is that the passion of your life right now? Can you honestly say, as a, as a believer in Christ, someone who's been saved by Christ, you know that he saved you, can you honestly say right now, that's the passion of my life, is verse 10. I just want to know Christ. I want to know him more than I did yesterday. And if it isn't, if, if somewhere your love has grown cold, if somewhere that fire has gone out, then why has it gone out? 
And and the call for you today is to come back to Christ, to confess whatever it is that is keeping you from a passionate pursuit of knowing Jesus Christ more. Because what God wants to see in us, the longer we walk with Jesus, the, the more sweet our fellowship with him should be. The more intimate our relationship with him should be, the more we should grow to love him more and more and more, the longer that we walk with him. And and he unpacks that a little bit in this verse. He he talks about wanting to know the power of his resurrection. Don't you want to know that? The, The power of the resurrection inside of you, making all things new in your life. Don't you want to know more of that? I want to know more of that. I want to know more of the power of his resurrection around me and working through me. I want to see more of that power changing people's lives so they can experience what I've experienced in Christ. And we're all down for that, but maybe want to skip the next line, right? Where he says, I also want to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. But you know, when we're united with Christ and we're following a Savior who died on a wooden cross, we cannot follow that Savior who died on a wooden cross without experiencing suffering of some kind. Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, you should expect persecution. They're not going to treat you any different than they treated me. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross every single day. And be willing to suffer whatever it means for you to suffer in my plan for your life. Paul says, I'm willing to do that. He actually says, I want to do that. Not that he wants to suffer physically, but he says, I want to do that because I know that in suffering, I know that in being conformed to the death of Christ, I'm going to get to know him more. And haven't you found that to be true? In those times in your life where you've gone through difficult times, when you've gone through suffering, isn't it in those times that even more than in the happy times, right? You experience the love and the, the intimacy of Christ. And you get to learn some things about his character that you would not learn, would not have learned, if you hadn't walked down that difficult road. So we, we need to know that if we walk with him, we're going to suffer like him. We're going to suffer for him, but also we're going to suffer with him. We're not alone. Jesus is with us when we walk through those times of suffering. Paul said in verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. That's part of what it means to know Christ. Finally, knowing Christ means this. It means that one day we will be raised from the dead to live forever with Christ. Look at verse 11. If by any means I may attain, to the resurrection from the dead. When he says by any means, I want you to hear that. It doesn't mean that he's not sure if he's going to be with God one day. It doesn't mean that he's not sure if uh, God is going to raise him from the dead. If you have read Paul's letters, you know he is sure. Right? He knows whom he has believed. And he is confident that he is able right, to preserve that which has been committed to him until that day. Right? There's no uncertainty about where this is heading. What Paul is saying here is, is that he doesn't know by what means that's going to happen. Right? He, he doesn't know, if, as one person put it, if God's going to lead him down a smooth road or a rough road. If God's going to lead him down a short road or a long road. He doesn't know what road he's going to take, but he knows what's at the end of it. And he knows what is at the end of it is a resurrection. Living with Christ forever and ever. That's part of what it means to know Christ. You know, this week as I was studying this passage and and thinking about what Paul says here, that Christ is our treasure and how everything else compared to Christ is is really trash. And 
it just reminded me of one of my favorite stories, a little story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, where he described heaven as a, as a treasure buried in a field. Do you remember that story? Jesus said, it's like you're walking in a field one day and, and you're kind of just poking around, you know, and all of a sudden maybe you're with your shovel out there and you hit something solid, right? And you start to dig and there's this gold chest hidden under the ground and you open it up and it's filled, right, with all of these treasures worth more than you've ever seen in your whole life. He says, what would you do if that happened to you? He said, you close that chest and you put it back under the ground. You put dirt on top of it. He said, you would go and you would get all the money you had. You would even sell everything you had. You sell your car, you sell your house, right? You sell anything you needed to sell to get enough money to do what? To go and to buy that field from whoever owned it. And you would not care what people said about you, right? You wouldn't care if they said, oh, that's just a worthless field. That's just a bunch of trash. Why are you selling everything you had to buy that worthless field? You wouldn't care what they said. Because you would know something that they didn't know. You would know that buried in that field is treasure. Again, I think sometimes we do get confused in life between what is our treasure and what is our trash. But salvation is not a DIY project. We cannot earn heaven. You can't work for God to try to somehow earn salvation by your own efforts. All of our efforts to try to earn our own salvation, Paul clearly says, that amounts to a pile of trash. But there is one treasure, and Jesus is that treasure. Friend, I hope today you will see what a treasure Jesus really is. And I hope you'll be able to say with Paul that once you've seen Jesus, once you've seen what a treasure he is, that everything else is a loss compared to the gain of knowing him. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me at this time. And, and I just wanna invite you. We're gonna have pastors here at, at each aisle. I'm going to go ahead and ask our pastors to make their way to the front here. And I, I just want to appeal to you, if you're here, and you know, you know what, I, I'm exactly what you have been describing. I, I've been working, working, work, maybe in a religious way, maybe in a non-religious, but I've, I've been calling, trying to get to a place where I felt secure in knowing God, but I just can't get there. And maybe today for the first time, it's just clicked in your heart and it's clicked in your mind that what you need to do is to stop working and just start trusting and start relying on what Jesus has already done for you. That God wants to write Jesus's perfect score next to your name, but you have to humble yourself enough to admit your need for a savior. And right now, I wanna invite you to come. As we sing this song, don't wait for anybody else. You come right now and speak with one of the pastors and say, I want that. I want that perfect score written next to my name. I want that forgiveness that only Jesus can give me. You come as we sing. 